But I just said, you know, Tim, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to be vulnerable for a minute. I'm going to trust you and I'm going to tell you the whole story. You know, I should have realized that what was about to happen was going to happen, but I wasn't sure. Of course, he embraced me in every possible way and the support was unbelievable. And I realized at that moment that I had wasted 40 years of my life keeping this secret when being a bit more vulnerable and being a bit more open probably would have allowed me to have even more enduring and endearing relationships throughout my entire life. You know, what I've come to understand and appreciate as a business person and as a, as a leader, I guess, is people are looking for authentic leaders. They're looking for people who are truly authentic, who can come down to everybody's level, if you will, and be themselves. And I've always thought I was an incredibly authentic leader. But I came to realize that there was this one little issue that was hiding my true authenticity, if you will. And so once I got that out of the way, all of a sudden I'm like, hey guys, here's who I am. And it's been unbelievable. I mean, the support level, it's been remarkable in that way. But I think the word that I would use is authenticity. And that's what I think most people want to see in their leaders today. My name's Dr. Gary Crotez, and I'm a coach, podcaster, and award-winning author of The Idea Mindset, a book about how to figure out what you want and how to get it. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. When I'm in conversation with my coaching clients, these are the breakthroughs that are so profound that they remember vividly where they were, who they were with, what they were thinking when their unlock moment happened. In this podcast, I'll be meeting and learning about people who have accomplished great things or brought about significant change in their life. And you'll be meeting them with me. We'll be finding out what inspired them, how they got through the hard times and what they learned along the way that they can share with you. Thank you for joining me on this podcast to hear all about another unlock moment. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to another episode of the Unlock Moment podcast. Today, we're talking about talking, finding openness and trust in our leadership and our relationship with the people around us. Peter De Silva is a highly experienced financial industry executive and board member, a former Harvard University senior fellow for the Advanced Leadership Initiative. He's the author of Taking Stock, 10 Life and Leadership Principles from My Seat at the Table, just recently published in March this year. As retail president for online stockbroker TD Ameritrade, he was responsible for the $5 billion retail business segment and 5,000 employees. He also served as president of Scott Trade Financial Services and UMB Financial Corporation, as well as being a senior leader at Fidelity Investments. As well as his extensive business career, Peter is also shaped by his experience with a debilitating neurological condition, Charcot-Marie-Tooth disease, CMT, something he chose not to share with others for decades. He says, I believe that life experiences test the impressions people hold, values they set and believe, or a set of actions that people might want or not want to emulate. I'm looking forward to hearing more about his journey in business and in life, how he balanced well-being and work, and the moments of remarkable clarity that shaped his path. Peter De Silva 
it is my great pleasure to welcome you to the Unlock Moment. Thank you, Gary. It's great to be with you today. Fantastic. Thank you so much for uh, taking up the invitation. So, so, Peter, where do we need to start in your journey to understand your Unlock Moment and where you are today? Well, as you acknowledged in the opening, um, unfortunately, I do have this disease that runs in my family called Charcot-Marie Tooth Disease, and uh, it's a neurological disorder. It's a it's a lifelong event. It does not uh, it's not life shortening in any way, but it is uh, it is life limiting in, in some in some respects. And so I've wrestled with this my whole life. And maybe a story is a good place to start. And so you know, I was probably twelve or thirteen years old. I was on the baseball field playing playing little league baseball. And I'll never forget the moment uh, in the last inning of the game where I was up to the plate and I had a chance to win the ball game for the whole team. And so I'm standing at the plate and my coach is exhorting me. He says, look, just let the ball hit the bat. Ordinarily, he'd say hit the bat with the ball. He said, no, no, just let the ball hit the bat. Just hold the bat out, let it hit. And, you know, you're sure to get you're sure to get a hit. Well, lo and behold, I got a hit. And off to first base, I went and the runners on second and third started to come come around the uh, bases as well. Well, the inevitable happened because this happens with people with CMT. I tripped and I fell in a cloud of dust and the game was over. And so that moment of opportunity that I had turned into a very, very, very difficult moment that I remember today. Uh, It was one of those moments that sort of shaped me in many respects. And I remember my mother in particular talking to me after that game, trying to console me and saying, look, you know, you are what you are. CMT is what you have. It's not what you are. It's not who you are. And so we just need to find different outlets for you, you know, things that maybe it's not athletics, but maybe it'll be other things. And so I played the trumpet and joined the band. And I decided that uh, when when came time to choose a career, that it wasn't going to be a physical career. It wasn't going to be an outdoor career. It was not going to be a fireman. It was not going to be a policeman or things such as that. Um, So I had those moments of clarity somewhat relatively early in life. Uh, but the impact of, of having CMT really, really was with me my entire life in the sense that, you know, I kept it to myself. My parents were very clear that it was my problem, our problem, our family's issue, and nobody else needed to know about it. And she was just worried. My, both my parents were worried that somehow it would negatively impact my, my ability to succeed in, in life. And so for 40 years, I kept it very, very, very quiet, even from very close friends. You know, I just, I just, I just dealt with it. Um, and then one day I realized that that was wrong. You know, the, this whole podcast is the Unlock Moment podcast. I'll never forget, I was uh, working at uh, TD Ameritrade. And my boss, Tim, said to me, you know, you're an awesome guy. You're an incredible leader. But there's something here more. And I'm like, no, no there's nothing more. But I just said, you know, Tim, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to be vulnerable for a minute. I'm going to trust you. And I'm going to tell you the whole story. And you know, I should have realized that what was about to happen was going to happen, but I wasn't sure. Of course, he embraced me in every possible way, and the support was unbelievable. And I realized at that moment that I had wasted 40 years of my life keeping this secret when being a bit more vulnerable and being a bit more open probably would have allowed me to have even more enduring and endearing relationships throughout my entire life. And what changed in that moment to make that the time when you were going to share? Uh, you know, he was just a very uh, open sort of person. He was very interested. You could tell he was very interested. It wasn't about business. It was about about me as a person. And that really touched me in, in a lot of ways. And I just, I just decided to take the plunge. I decided to be trustworthy 
And it's the best decision I've ever made, not only in the short term in that business context, but also in, uh, in just wrestling those demons to the ground, so to speak. And I'm very interested in the cloud of dust, actually. I was talking to somebody recently uh, about their unlock moment. We were on stage. We were, we were doing a like, fireside chat in front of an audience of people. And I only just met the person that I was, that was interviewing me about the unlock moment. And, and I said to her, would you be okay if we do a little demo of this kind of unlock moment conversation with you? And I asked the same questions, you know, where would we start in your story to understand the person you are today? And she told a story of being five years old. Um, and she uh, remembers that moment that she, she um, felt upset. She felt shame in that moment as a five-year-old. And it's a very resonant um, moment. And she said, actually, in this moment, thinking back to that time, I'm making connections that I've never really made before about why I went on to do some of the things that I went on to do. It does connect back to that story. So why, why for you, it's a big question, why for you do you remember that? cloud of dust and tripping in that moment, what, what, what did that do or what does that represent in the 40 years of then not really sharing this with, with other people? Well, as you know, uh, young people can be really difficult on each other, really tough on each other. And I certainly experienced that. Again, when you're young, what, what do you do with your friends? It's, it's your outdoors, you're athletic, you're you know, the kid that's sitting in the house you know, practicing the trumpet or playing the piano is not usually the most popular person at school. Uh, and so for me, it was about trying to be, popular is not the right word, but trying to be involved and engaged and, 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 and relevant to that group of people. And I had to ultimately get comfortable, and it was the cloud of dust moment where I ultimately had to get comfortable saying, I am who I am. CMT is what I have, it's not who I am. And I'm going to work my way through that. Now, 12, 13 years old, it's pretty young. Um, but you know, as life went on and time went on, I had multiple surgeries. I was laid up. I missed my freshman year of high school. I had to be tutored at home because of a bunch of surgeries. I missed my freshman year of college, et cetera. So it became apparent early on that I was going to have to redirect, uh, sort of my, my interest in life. And my parents were very instrumental in that and in, in really saying, don't focus on what you can't do, focus on what you can do right? This does not in, impact your cognition. It does not impact your, your brain in any way. So use your brain and not your brawn. So, so for me, those were the kinds of things that helped me to, to, to you know, in, enjoy life and have the success that I've enjoyed. And you said it runs in, in, in families. Are there other members of your family who have it and you, and you learn from or, you, or they can learn from you now in their experience? Yeah. So, it is a genetic disorder that, that runs in families, to your, to your point. There's about 3 million cases around the world and 150,000 in the United States, making it the, the most common rare disease uh, in the world. <laughs> so it's actually more common than, than you might imagine. And I'll challenge you and your listeners that now that you're aware of it, you'll come across somebody within the next three to six months who will have it or know someone who has it, and you'll say, oh, you just, I was talking to somebody on a podcast about, about that. Um, so yes, my sister has it. And in fact, she has a worse case than I do in the sense that she's in her wheelchair and has been for about 25 years. I'm still very ambulatory. I get around. I still ride my bike. I go kayaking maybe this afternoon. So I can still do things. But my sister, who's been a real role model, she's a bit older, but has struggled with it mightily. But I think the thing that really, really got me over the last few years was watching my daughter begin to struggle with it. 
which the only thing worse than you struggling with something is watching a daughter or a child struggle with it. So watching her struggle with it, my nieces and nephews struggle with it. And I just said, you know what, it's time to talk about it. It's time to be vulnerable about it. And it's time to do something about it. And so I joined the board of a group called the CMT Research Foundation, which raises funds to you know, fund the, the most leading edge, uh, leading edge re- research uh, around the disease. So that's made me feel like I'm trying to do something to really, really move the needle on this. And did that happen around the same time you started to talk to, to Tim, your boss, or you know, what came first? It's interesting because they've been after me for 10 years, 15 years to join the board and do things. And I said, nope, not doing it. I don't really want to be part of that. I would give money to help support their, their efforts, but I just didn't want to be sort of a, a figure or a face, if you will. And today, of course, I write about it in the book. Now that I've gotten more comfortable with it, I raise money and, and do what I can to help the organization. And so, you know, each of us deals with things in different ways and in different timelines. And for me, it took, well, I'm 61. It probably took 56, 57 years to get comfortable with it. But now I am. And now I discuss it and I address it and I, I work hard to try to help others with it. And do you think the people that worked with you in, in that time, in that 40 years, had no idea? Or do you think they knew, but they knew that it wasn't being talked about? Hard to say. Um, I suspect they, they had no idea because now that the book is out and I've been transparent, I've had a lot of folks say, wow, I didn't know you were, you were wrestling with that during, during our, our time together. Um, so, so I think for most people, I was able to just sort of cover it up. And, you know, um, so I walk with a limp or whatever, but that was an old sports injury. And, and that's just the way I, I addressed it. So how did it change your relationships with people when you started to be more open and, 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 you know, to a level you were comfortable with, you know, talk more about what was going on for you? You know, what I've come to understand and appreciate as a business person and as a, as a leader, I guess, is people are looking for authentic leaders. They're looking for people who are truly authentic, who can come down to everybody's level, if you will, and be themselves. And I've always thought I was an incredibly authentic leader, but I came to realize that there was this one little issue that was hiding my true authenticity, if you will. And so once I got that out of the way, uh, all of a sudden I'm like, hey guys, here's who I am. Here's, you know, here's what I have. Here's how I uh, mitigate that. And it's been unbelievable. I mean, the support level, whether it's yeah, people giving money to our foundation, or it's just people who are super supportive. Uh, it's been it's been remarkable in that way. But I think the the word that I would use is authenticity, and and that's what I think most people want to see in their leaders today. It's very interesting. It's 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 a word that I really deeply connect with. My book, the idea mindset idea, is an acronym for identity, direction, engagement, authenticity, and it's about who you are, where you're going for a future where you love what you do and you're connected deeply with your values, your sense of purpose and that, that authentic brand. I mean, I, I've seen through my career, I'm sure you must have seen through your career, that shift in the expectation of the leading, leadership model. You know, when you think back to early in your career, do you think that expectations of leaders were very different from today? Oh, you're, you're exactly correct. I mean, I'll go back to another unlock moment for me. It was uh, very early in my career, but it was that moment where you realize that you are no longer going to do the work, but you're going to lead others in doing the work. 
and I never forget that moment at, at Fidelity when my boss threw me into a, a brand new division or new department uh, called bank reconciliations. And I said, Paul, I know nothing about that. I am not, I am not, you know, understanding of that area. And he said, it doesn't matter. This is the moment we're going to find out if you're a leader or you're a doer. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, since you don't understand the functional area we're about to throw you in, you're going to need to rely on others. You're going to need to lead others through this. And it'll be an interesting exercise to see if you're, you're a leader or a, or a doer. And long story short, it worked out pretty well. I, I, I went to the group with, a, with great humility and said, I need you more than you need me. I don't really understand what I've just been thrown into, but here's what I commit to you. I'll be a good listener. I'll be a good observer. I will make sure that you have the tools and resources you need to succeed, et cetera, et cetera. And that was the moment where I actually shifted my career emphasis from, you know, kind of um, uh, being part of a team to leading teams. Uh, but it was that it was that moment. It was literally I can remember it today, and it was thirty plus years ago. Uh, but uh, but it really it really changed me in in many different respects. And there's something very characteristic about Unlock Moments. I talk a lot on the podcast about that idea that two things, I think. The first is when you think back, it's such a vivid memory in that moment. And the second is the moment is a moment of knowing something different, not necessarily a moment of making different decisions or taking different actions, but it's that you know something that you didn't know before. So at that moment, when you decided that you were going to play that you know, more humble, vulnerable leadership model. What did you know about yourself that, that was a shift from before? Well, I knew that I, I had to change my style, again, from doing work to leading others and doing work. I knew that I had to change my style in, instead of speaking to listening, uh, which is one of the most underappreciated skills in, in the world today, I think. I knew that I had to change my approach in the sense that you know, others were going to be smarter than me on my team. And I, I had to get okay with that. And I think we all have to understand that at the end of the day, there's no I in team, right? That that team is about the 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 ability to bring people together in common purpose, um, in a with a common objective and with common goals and outcomes. And that was the transition. Less me, more we. And and it was really about um about recognition too. I, I always remember this that you know, I used to think that, oh, I was the boss. I had to be the one that got recognized for the good work. And boy, was I wrong about that. And it took some time, but eventually I adopted this approach that I talk about in the book, which is, you know, you, you have to shine the light on others. And in fact, the light actually shines much more brightly back on you when you do that versus when you want the light to shine on you. And so you have to turn that light and shine it on others. And you, you, in the reflection, it actually shines back brighter on you. And having done your, you know, kind of cut your teeth and, and grown your career in, you know, big financial institutions you've worked in, was there a part of your brain that was going vulnerable is weak? I'm not supposed to be this kind of leader. Being an effective leader is being in control and being, you know, leading from the front and telling people what to do. Was there a part of your brain that kind of been trained in that way over the years? Oh, 100%. I mean, they're, they're, and to your point earlier, when you asked the question, how has leadership changed? I think that is one of the ways in which it has changed. Uh, in the sense that, you know, in the old days, so to speak, you didn't want to show vulnerability. You had to be strong. You had to be the one that was, you know, the leader was expected to be the one that was, uh, was, was strong. And today, I think, again, I go back to that word authenticity. I think people want leaders who can be vulnerable at times. They still want strong leaders. They want leaders who are, 
able to advance the cause and that they want to follow and that can manage through adversity and such. Absolutely. But there are moments of vulnerability that add real texture to your leadership style and and really add the ability for you to uh, to endear them more more to you. I really like that. Uh, I went to a talk years ago by I called Charles Wilson, who's a, a top leader in the uh, UK retail industry. And he said, you won't, well, you'll never be an effective leader uh, unless people follow you. Um, and they follow you because they trust you. They follow you because they, 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 they look up to you, but not to copy you, but because that they see that there's a path that you are shaping to the future that they want to be a, a part of. Uh, and that's, that's so powerful. So you've come to this stage in your career and you decided to write a book. So where did that come from? And, and tell us more about taking stock. Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, so I finished my career, or this part of my career at least, with a, a group called TD Ameritrade in the United States, the, one of the largest broker dealers and one of the largest uh, trading firms in, in the country. And we sold the company to Charles Schwab a few years ago. And at the end of that, they said, hey, you can, you can head out now and here's a two-year non-compete for your services. And so during that two years, I had to think about, well, what am I going to do? Uh, I can't go back into the industry anytime soon. And so I ended up at Harvard University uh, in their advanced leadership initiative as a senior fellow for 18 months. And alongside that, you know, it was such an intellectually stimulating time to be back on a college campus. I came to realize that pretty much everybody's written a book. If you're at Harvard, you've pretty much written a book. And I said, you know what, I've got enough material, I've got enough experiences, I've, I've had enough sort of time in, in, in the seat, so to speak, to put this down and codify some of these principles that were pretty and just kind of innate to me. Like these 10 principles, I didn't come up with them. These were things I had been experiencing and practicing my entire life. Uh, but I said, you know, I think I can put these down and I actually think they might help others. And, you know, the great thing about learning is once something has been learned, it doesn't have to be learned again. It can be taught. And so my, my view was if someone else can benefit from these 10 life and leadership principles, then it's worth the effort to try to put those together. And so I launched the book in March of 23, and I've been incredibly gratified, just incredibly gratified from so many people who've reached out and said, you know what, I wasn't vulnerable either, and you've really helped me sort of break through that. I got a wonderful note literally this morning from someone who, who read the book and just said it was so inspirational, not my story so much, but, but the way in which I was able to talk about my story in the context of the experiences and in the context of, you know, of, of whatever achievements I might've been, I might've enjoyed. Um, so, so the book was really just an attempt to codify some of these principles, wrap my experiences around those to try to help accelerate the learnings of others. So bring to life some of the stories that you feature in the book and, and some of those key messages that you're trying to give the reader. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll talk about leaders, leadership of emerging, young emerging leaders. It's something I feel so, so, so strongly about that my legacy as a leader is really embedded in the leaders that come behind me. The ones that came before me, they're, they're sort of, you know, they're gone. It's the ones that come behind me and, and learn from my experiences. So I'll tell you a brief story. So when I was at Fidelity, one day my boss walked in my office, his name was Fred, and he said, I want you to move to Cincinnati, Ohio and help clean up a bit of a mess we've created out there. And I said, Fred, I'm not doing that. I live in Boston. I love Boston. I'm not going to do that. So a couple of weeks later, he came in my office and he said, haven't you gone yet? Um, I thought I told you you were moving to Cincinnati. And I said, I thought I told you I wasn't. And he said, no, you don't understand. <laughs> 
I did ask, but I really wasn't asking. You, you need to do it. And by the way, this was 30 years ago, at which time your boss would come in your office and say, son, your desk has moved. Are you going with it or not? In right. essence. And uh, so I ended up going down there for a couple of years. And this really strange thing used to happen, which was Fred, great guy. I love, I love Fred. Fred would come down most every week, uh, come to Cincinnati. He was in Boston. He'd fly down, uh, spend a couple hours in his office in, in Cincinnati. He'd put his feet on the desk, read the Wall Street Journal, make a few phone calls, and then go home. And I was like, this is really peculiar. I don't know why he needs to come here. We could just have a phone call or whatever. But anyways, this went on for quite a bit of time. So I finished the job. I moved back to Boston. And one night, I'm at a cocktail party. And um, Fred's mar boss, Mark, says to me, hey, you did such a great job out there. We're really proud of you. It was really, really terrific work. And he said, quote, to think none of us on the executive committee thought you could do the job. So he immediately realizes he's made a faux pas. He turns around and goes and talks to somebody else. So the next morning, I walk into Fred's office, close the door. And I said, Fred, what was that all about? I just had this weird interaction with Mark. What was that all about? And he just sort of looks at the floor and he says, what are you worried about? It all worked out okay, right? I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. It all worked out great. And I got a promotion on the way back, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, but there's something deeper here that I have to understand. And he said, it's not a big deal. I said, no, I need to understand. And then I stopped the mid-sentence and I said, now I get it. You came down there every week, not because you thought I needed help but because you wanted to make them feel more comfortable that you are overseeing things if this young person you know was running this very 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 high profile high profile area and he looked at the floor and he kind of said yeah he said so what do you take away from that and i said what i take away from that is one i have great respect for you as a leader in that you you know protected me and you were there to protect me if i needed it and i can't imagine how you were protecting me upstream you know with with the executive committee he says yeah he said, but the bigger takeaway is you have an obligation and a responsibility to nurture young talent. And you were young talent. You were in your early 30s. You know, you, you, I could see you, were, you had some capability, but it needed to be refined. And we threw you into an opportunity. But here's the quid pro quo. I built a fence around you. And that fence I built around you was me in the sense that I wasn't going to let you fail. I was there for you. I was there to, you know, nurture you, help you, support you if you needed it. In your case, you didn't need a lot of help, which was great. But I took so much away from that that it informed a big part of my leadership style going forward. And I would hope that if you talk to people who worked for me over the last 30 years, they would say that I'm one of the best development leaders they've ever had because I am willing to take risks on young people. But I also build a fence around them so that they don't fail. And the principle that evolved from that is that near failure is a better teacher than actual failure. This idea that you let, you let your teams roam the landscape, if you will, you put a fence around them, but you let them roam, you let them make key decisions, you let them make, you know, make the, uh, the things that do the things they think make sense. But when they approach the fence, the fence line, sometimes you have to pull them back. And sometimes your obligation as a leader is to have a conversation and say, tell me, tell me more about why you're doing what you're doing. Tell me more about, about your decision-making in, in, as you're thinking about this or whatever it might be. That's your real role. Your real role is to be a coach. Your real role is to help these leaders grow and mature uh, more quickly than they otherwise might if you weren't their leader. And I've just found that so powerful, and I've used that throughout my career. There's so much in that, and I think it's a fantastic story. You tell it really well. The, the two things that come to mind, one is that idea of pay it forward. You know, he... he 
put a fence around you. He supported you. But his expectation of you is not that he gets something back, but that you do the same for young people coming through that, 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 that you can mentor through your career. And the second, uh, and I'm going back a long way in the unlock moment here to quite an early episode I did with somebody called Shinta Miller, who's a, uh, is actually a, um, a sort of top celebrity stylist here in the UK. And, and she was talking about um, going through life, knowing what her safety net was, you know, that if she was to fail, then she thought her mum was, was, was her safety net. And then she got to a stage in life and her unlock moment was, she said, I realized that I am my own safety net, that over the years I've built the network of people around me, I've built my skills, my experience such that I won't fail now. But at an earlier stage in my journey, I needed other people to support me in that kind of way. And it helped me to take risks that I knew that safety net was there. And again, that, that, that sort of resonates with, with what you described there. He was enabling you to take risks and, uh, you know, face these challenges and kind of walk on the edge of, of, of potentially failing. But he was always there for you, you know, if you needed it. Right. And that, that was the power, I think, in that, in that lesson. And uh, again, it informed my leadership style to the extent that I always say to my teams, I'm like, look, you know, the amount of time I spend with you is inversely correlated to the amount of confidence I have in you. And so if I have a lot of confidence in you, well, we're probably not spending a lot of time together. You know, we're getting the regular updates. We're, we're looking at the scorecards. We're making sure things are on track. I said, a bad day for you is when I'm all over you, because that means maybe I haven't lost confidence, but I have questions about what we're, about what we're up to. And uh, I always tell my team that. <laughs> I don't know if they like it or not, but they hear it. <laughs> That's all they get. Um, and who are the people that you really want to read this book? So the book is really targeted at leaders at any stage of their of their life, right, or of their career. Um, I was very deliberate in calling this 10 life and leadership principles, not just leadership principles, because what I came to understand is that these principles are transferable between your life and f- whether they're friendships, relationships, and what we all do in the context of our, you know, of our, of our business life as, as well. Um, so it really is targeted as anyone who is a leader or an aspiring leader, uh, anyone who really wants to understand the financial industry over the last 35 years, because I do use that as a backdrop for a lot of the experiences and a lot of the stories that I've, I've had. I talk about 2008 and the financial crisis uh, as a crisis of leadership, not necessarily a crisis of finance, although it was really both in many respects. Um, so it's really targeted at uh, anyone who wants to improve either their life or their leadership capabilities. And other people that you come across where you think you need to connect with your vulnerability, you need to switch from boss mode into coach mode, but you haven't figured that out yet. You know, I, I recognize my own journey, those moments when I figured that out. You haven't figured that out yet, but you will one day. Do you see those leaders that, that you kind of want to point to pick up some of these stories and maybe have little unlock moments themselves about, about what needs to change. Yeah, most definitely. And, and th- those have been the ones that have reached out to me the most since reading the book, sort of that young, aspiring, not, not 100% confident reader yet who looks at one of my stories. Like, for example, one of my principles is to read by principles and not by rules, right? And if you think about that, that's a hard thing to do for a young leader, because you're brought up that, okay, it's a very rules-based sort of society. It's a very rules-based sort of organization. Um, and I, my challenge to them is to think about reading by principles, which in my view is a much better 
in a much more contemporary way of leading people than putting a bunch of rules in place. I mean, think about the Code of Hammurabi, which was 282 rules that were very clear. If you do this, you will get stoned or whatever the case might be. That's literally what it was. It was an if-then sort of statement. And contrast that with the U.S. Declaration of Independence, which talks in a very broad sense about a set of principles. You know, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. It doesn't go on then to enumerate 5,000 examples of equality. It just says we're equal. Okay, now you figure it out. And so in a business context, what I try and do and have worked really hard to do is to adopt the set of principles that I, I offer to my team every time we get together. I'm like, guys, here are the principles and let's work through these principles. Now, back to my story about fences, there have to be fences, there have to be guardrails, there have to be, you know, norms and those sorts of things. But if you start with principles, and this is hard for young leaders, but if you start with principles, you will get a more loyal workforce, you will get a more engaged workforce, you'll get a more entrepreneurial workforce, um, and you'll get a, a workforce that's willing to take risks, understanding the outcomes that they're, they're trying to create. So, you know, for young people who are still struggling with what kind of leader they want to be, I would offer think about principles, not rules. And here's a bit of a meta question. If you think back to when you were a young leader, you know, the first time you were in, in leadership roles, and imagine you could pick up this book then, what's, what's the story or what's the, what's the lesson that you think you really needed to hear at that time in your career? I would say it's, it's this one, um, which I understood, came to understand. And it's, it's this quote that is my quote. If you take care of associates, they'll take care of clients and the rest will take care of itself. It is fundamental. It is elemental. But at the end of the day, it is the surest way to have success in business and arguably in life uh, is to follow that path. Take care of the people who take care of your clients or your constituents and the rest will take care of itself. And I think back to Fred, who came down and sat in his office and read the newspaper and made a few phone calls and then flew back home. He was taking care of me. I, you know, he didn't have to do a lot, which was great for him and great for me, but he was taking care of me. So for me, that sums it up. And if, if, you know, if I had known that 30 years or 40 years ago when I was first starting out, I would have acted differently. I would have done some things differently and might have had success sooner than I ultimately found it. And I think that your, your story about your own personal experience with, with health challenges and, and how to and when to talk, talk about it is, is really resonant. And, and you said right at the beginning, and, and I completely agree with this, the, the idea that everyone's different and decisions you know, need to be appropriate for each individual person. But when you think about you know, if you were to give a message to other people who are listening to this and thinking, there's something in my life that I've never shared that I wonder whether maybe I should share, what, what would you say to somebody who's just thinking about that in, in listening to your story? It's probably a risk worth taking. Now, that's, that's going to be up to the individual. It depends on the story. It depends on what the imp implications might be uh, of that story. But I think they should be biased towards being more open and transparent versus sort of closed. At least that was my that was my learning. I mean, I thought, oh my God, this when people learn I have this disease, one of two things is going to happen: either they're going to shun me, which wasn't even close to being true, or you know, or they're going to embrace me, or they're going to try to accommodate. None of that happened. None of it happened. What did happen was 
greater authenticity, a better understanding of who I was and maybe why I did some of the things I did and acted the way I acted, um, but all within the right context. Now they had the context. They understood why I was the way I was. And, and that was all for the good. Fantastic. How can people find out more about you and the work you do? Well, you can go to my website anytime. It's peterjdesilva.com. Uh, really simple. You can learn more about taking stock there. Uh, our 10 life and leadership principles. I've got a, a free guide, a sort of free user guide to how to use the 10 life and leadership principles that you can find on our website. And um, I, there's a place to email me if you'd like, and I'm more than happy to engage with folks through email or, or a quick conversation if, uh, if they're desirous of doing so. Fantastic. And we'll put that in our show notes. The Unlock Moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. For business leader and author Peter De Silva, it was opening up about his personal health challenges that enabled him to build more authentic and trusting relationships with his friends and peers. Do go and buy a copy of Peter's book, Taking Stock, 10 Life and Leadership Principles from My Seat at the Table, available on Amazon and all good bookstores. Peter, thank you so much for coming, sharing your story, and joining me today on The Unlock Moment. Thank you, Gary. It's been a pleasure. This has been The Unlock Moment, a podcast with me, Dr. Gary Crotez. Thank you for listening in. You can find out more about how to figure out what you want and how to get it in my book, The Idea Mindset. Find me on Instagram at Dr. Gary Crotez and subscribe to this podcast to get notified about future episodes. Most listeners to this podcast on Apple and Spotify haven't yet hit the follow button. If there's one thing you can do right now to help me out, then please click the follow button. The more followers I have, the better guests I can attract for you to learn from. Thanks again for listening and join me again soon here on The Unlock Moment.